outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 317. Today in the show, we are finally recapping our epic backcountry canoe-in whitetail hunt in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness of Northern Minnesota. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today, we're throwing it back to late October and the story of my backcountry, big woods, canoe-in whitetail hunt in an incredible swath of land called the Boundary Waters. Now, this is a stretch of 1.1 million acres of public land. We're talking rocky ridges, thick woods, crystal clear lakes and rivers that is designated as a wilderness area, meaning there's no development here at all. No roads, no motorized vehicles allowed, no nothing. Just you, the wilderness, the water, and the critters. That's the kind of whitetail hunt I wanted to try to have this year. And finally, I did it. And wow, was it a hell of an experience. So today we've got the recap of that hunt with myself and my three hunting buddies that joined me for this trip. So we're going to hear that whole story. And then we have a second part to this podcast too. And the reason we're having that is because I was originally intrigued by this area, the Boundary Waters, because of a whole big controversy that's been brewing around it over the past few years. There is this uh, series of very risky sulfide ore copper mines that have been proposed to be put in right on the edge of the wilderness area, this very watery landscape. And it's going to present a really, really serious threat of pollution that could damage that watershed and could threaten the wildlife and the water that so many people have come to love. So I'd heard about all this, but I wanted to see it for myself. I wanted to understand what was up for grabs here and then see if we could learn a little bit more about what we can do to help protect this place. So after you hear about our hunt, we're going to be joined by Lucas Leaf. He is the executive director for Sportsman for the Boundary Waters, and he's going to help us you know, learn a little bit more about this controversy and what we as hunters and anglers can do to help keep this place intact and healthy. And trust me on this one, it is a place worth seeing and saving. So without further ado, let's take one quick break 
and then we'll get right into the story of our wild and challenging Boundary Waters whitetail adventure. Do you feel at all ostracized because you were the new person as part of the group? What's ostracized? Oh, oh here we go. Here it is. It starts. This guy. <laughs> it begins. I was this guy in the podcast once. <laughs> I think you all were there. Ostracized means uh, like you feel left out or shunned or right. disrespected. Yeah. No, I don't feel ostracized. Good. Okay. Well, then introduce yourself. My name's Charlie Williams um, from Michigan. I met Mark last fall to take pictures of the buck he shot called Frank. True. And I work at General Motors. The last six weeks I've been traveling around the West, been in Bozeman, Montana for the big chunk of it, linking up with people to take pictures of those hunts. I've been on four elk hunts, a mountain goat hunt, an antelope hunt, quail hunt, whitetail hunt, and then met up with Mark and the boys out here at the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. So I have so many questions for you, but I want to just finish our quick introductions before we get into that, because your your journey into the feral state you currently live in is worth touching on. But uh, continuing around the clock, we have next, who? Andy Bradley. I'm from Michigan, too. A uh, friend of Mark's. We've been hunting out west a few times together. I don't live too far from Mark, so he's usually uh, one of the first ones that I call when I shoot a big buck, I guess. So it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Once every uh, 10 years. Last, we've got a new character. You guys have not heard from him before. You might call him Brown Bear. You might call him Stickfish. <laughs> you might call him uh, Wormy Water. Or you might call him Furter. Yep. Josh yep. Hilliard. Yep. Do, you, do I need an intro too? Yeah, sure. All right. Just in well, case they're yeah, new. From Michigan. Uh, work for QDMA. Um, been friends with Mark for a long, long time. Um, How long? Well, gee, what, second grade? Second grade? Second grade. Can you believe um, that? Second grade? Second yeah. grade. Wow. That's back when they were in a yo-yo club together. <laughs> but we can get into that later. We, we were actually seven. We weren't 14 and looked like we were seven. We were actually seven when we met. <laughs> you guys should see this picture of Chuck, which... I'm glad he did it because I was going to. <laughs> was he doesn't want to be called Chuck. No one else can call him Chuck. All right, so there's a Freudian slip. Yeah. yeah. Charlie showed us a great picture of his first buck. Just a sweet buck. And yeah, your first awesome buck, buck. Your first buck was a really impressive deer. You never really did tell us the story of how you patterned that deer. We're going to talk about our Boundary Waters hunt here shortly, but I think before we talk about the Boundary Waters hunt, can you give us the Cliff Notes version of how you patterned and killed such a great buck when you were seven years old? Yeah, um, I'd been hunting this buck all bow season, and there was just these two fence rows that met. So I always sat on the corner. Well, this buck, he'd come out of the woods, and there was this certain spot in the fence row that he'd always cross. And this was when I was younger and didn't know as much, and I was like, man, he keeps crossing there. I need to put a stand up, and it was almost gun season. So I put the stand up the week before, never got a chance to hunt it. And then opening morning comes around, and a good buddy lived down the road, Went to his house for breakfast, had biscuits and gravy. Well, I was all I was all pumped up, ready to go shoot this buck. I knew it was the day. Shooting a single shot 20 gauge with a bead on the end. So I get out there super early, freezing. And then right, right before shooting light, I hear some stick snapping. He comes through the fence row. Walks 15 yards away. See his outline, see the rack. Smoke him. That's it? That was it. I don't know. I was expecting more. Yeah, I wanted. Yeah. 
What were you What were you hoping for? I don't know. I just thought it was going to be some back and forth, some heartbreak, some ups oh, and downs. There was some heartbreaks, but um, I'm, I'm, you know, she like Charlie the, tells it how it is though. Yeah. But, but right before I had that stand up, he was working down the fence road towards me, and I was I had my bow in my hand and I was just shaking, and he was working some does, and they just they cut through the fence row, and I was just like, man, I need to never never panned out how I wanted it to because mm-hmm. I really wanted to shoot him with a bow, but. Still happy it You worked. got it done. Yeah. That's cool. It was a great buck, great picture too. It brought us a lot of joy. Yeah, it did. Uh so we just got out of the boundary waters. We spent the last week or so paddling into what is one of the most visited, most special wilderness with a capital W areas in the United States. For those that are not familiar, there's like the generic wilderness. Like you talk about going out in the wilderness and that's kind of like a wild place. But then there are actually places that are designated wilderness with a capital W, which is something that is actual, an actual designation by the government that gives this area a certain set of protections above and beyond your typical public land. So you've got different categories. You've got stuff like national parks, which are, you know, managed for primarily human recreation and use. Then you've got places like national forests, which are very multiple use where you've got logging and mining and recreation and the protection of watersheds and wildlife and all these different things. Uh, you've got BLM lands, which are similar with a multiple use philosophy. Um, but then you have these wilderness areas. This came around in the mid 1960s. Um, when essentially there was this idea that there are some places out there that deserve a special extra level of protection to make sure that, you know, decades from now, when development continues, things continue to get bought up, dug up, whatever, that there will still be a few last vestiges of untouched land, stuff that still looks like it did 300 years ago, that still has wildlife, that still has the ability to, to go into it and, and hear silence to go into it and not see lights and cars and people everywhere. So this law, the wilderness act was passed. It created this system to protect these places. And the boundary waters was one of those places. 1.1 million acres protected in the boundary waters, canoe area wilderness, which is where we're just at. Um, so originally and, and Chuck and Andy are not paying attention at all. They're sitting in the front We've seat winking this. at each other. We've heard this for like the last six days. <laughs> Isn't this beautiful, guys? Yes, we love it. Stop saying that. <laughs> so so that's where we've been. And, you know, I originally was, was intrigued by this place because there was so much interest. There was so much talk over the last five to five years or so, at least that I was picking up on, about certain threats to this wilderness area was intrigued, wanted to learn more about this place that so many people seem to care about. So last year said, you know what, we're going to go and do a deer hunt in the Boundary Waters and made this plan. My buddy Andy Bradley says, I'm in, we're going to do the trip. We're all set to go. And then, I don't know, in October, first week of October or late September or something, Andy's like, ah, man, I can't do it. And why did you bail? You bailed? Andy bailed. It's the first time you ever bailed on me too. I I don't know if I've... I've kind of went over this, but I go by feel. I you weren't just, feeling it? No, I wasn't feeling it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of us get to live the feral lifestyle. Like my friend sitting next to me here, Charlie, 
but I, I have to like make money and stuff and I don't get to do it on the road. So I had to choose as much as I hate to say, I had to choose employment over leaving. So well, are you glad you left? Um, I don't even work there anymore. So no, I wish I would have went, but I wouldn't have got to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't out. go. Cause now I got to go. This yeah. Year. We're all worked out. So yeah, Andy couldn't do it last year, so we didn't do it this year. Rescheduled it and we did it. Um, so let's start here with a little bit of background around what happened leading up to the trip. I will be the first to say that Josh did a ton of the vast, vast majority and Andy planning things ahead of time. I've been running like crazy, had a hard time focusing on any major planning like this. So I said, Hey Josh, do you think that's something you might be able to take on? And you did, you ran with it, did an awesome job. It's fun. Um, do you want to give us a brief recap of how you went about trying to plan a trip like this? Because I think that's one of the main things that people maybe get a little intimidated about when they're thinking yeah. of trying an out-of-state yep. yep. major destination wilderness trip yeah. like this is how the heck do you get started? Can you give us a quick rundown of yeah. what you did? How no, you got some it, intel? It's it pretty daunting, um, daunting task to try to put all that together because you start looking at the maps and seeing all this stuff. It's like, geez, where do you even start? 1.1 um, 1. 1 million, million acres. And it all looks like very similar. And it's nothing like rivers the stuff we and streams. Use Yeah, yeah. Like big, big Northwood stuff. Um, so luckily, Mark gave me some some people to, to talk to. He kind of got me pointed in the right direction. And I kind of took it from there. And I, I talked to a number of different people that have spent time up here, that have hunted up here, that have just, you know, spent time here in the summer um, to try to get me pointed in the right direction. So um, talked to several different people, kind of had, I don't know, maybe five areas picked out. Um, that we should check out for deer hunting. Um, looked at them on maps, kind of started narrowing them down just from a from an access standpoint of what we could get into relatively easily um, for a couple of first or a few first timers coming up here. Um, so then we had it down, basically had it down to two people or two two different let's, areas. Let's let's rewind just a little bit. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but if but the types of people you reached out to, you reached mm-hmm. out to other hunters, other hunters. You reached out to some conservation organizations. Yep. You reached out to some outfitters, yep. like folks that are dealing with people coming in and out, yep. in and out, and out. And you reached out to a biologist too, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I talked to one of the biologists here in Minnesota, and they do a lot of the the studies and where the deer are at and yeah. where not to go. So all that kind of led yeah, make sure that wherever we went there'd be lots of deer yeah yeah, right. yeah, we're, yeah. um so so yeah that that's just i think a key point for people to keep in mind like there's all sorts of people you can talk yep. to and many times they'll be quite helpful at least in giving you some general information yep. like you said we had now a handful of different ideas like check out this region check out yep. this region check out this region yep. if you hadn't done that one of the major spots i was curious about was on the total opposite side of the of the wilderness there was a place where there was a big burn. I thought, well, that would be cool. I bet you there'd be some activity around mm-hmm. there. But come to find out, there's very few whitetails over there at all, yeah. mostly moose. Yep. Um, so that was a great thing that we wouldn't have known if you hadn't talked to these folks. Yeah, it was just uh, got a ton of help from uh, you know numerous different people of um, different backgrounds that kind of got us pointed in, in some decent directions and then kind of just went from there and picked out a spot. And when we got to the canoe outfitter to – Get our canoes and who do we go with? Who helped us with all that? Northwoods Outfitting. There we go. Um, they were a huge help, big time help. And they took a lot of time with us, even then the day that we got here and kind of looking at maps and yep. we we kind of made a, a last minute because time decision of a different spot to go. Yeah, but, I think that we need to 
provide some context as to what this area is like, how you're moving around, how you're getting things done. Mm-hmm. The way it starts is you have to pick an entry point yep. into the wilderness, and then you are typically going to be canoeing a river or a lake, and then you're going to basically use rivers and lakes as highways yep. to get from place to place to place. And then in between waterways, there are something called portages, which are essentially just trails that connect you to the next water source. And so what we were trying to figure out was, all right, how far can we get or which regions can we get to with our canoes, with all the gear we're taking in? Um, how difficult are these portages? I know there's some resources online that give you some intel. Yeah, yep, there are, um, there are some great resources online, websites that show you pictures and give you difficulty ratings and all that kind of stuff to, to the I portages. still feel like Adam, or the guy we talked to, Adam, I think was mm-hmm. his name, he was more helpful there in person actually telling oh, yeah. us, well, that one, yep. you're going to have to go over some steep cliffs or whatever, yep. and you might not want to take that with, with all your stuff. Yeah. Um, so and, that was good. And we went in heavy. We had a lot of stuff, so we had to be pretty mindful of of that. Yes, yeah, so let's talk gear. Mm-hmm. So we, just prior to our hunt, a big storm had pushed through northern Minnesota and the northern Great Plains, and so there's supposed to be snow and wind and rain and really nasty, and so when we were packing, like in the couple of days ahead of time, I know we were all thinking, like, man, it's going to be cold and nasty and wet, so like I had heavy like rain gear and cold weather gear packed, yeah. and we, uh, we had I guess prior to this, we'd even talked about this, but we'd got a wood-burning stove and a wall tent yep. that we were able to rent and use. Yep. So we had a wall tent. It was a pretty cool, small A-frame wall tent. We had a small, packable wood-burning stove. We had two canoes, and all those things we rented from Paragis. Um, Paragis? Yeah. I was always want to say pierogies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so we got all that gear from them. And then as far as our own equipment, we each brought our bows. We each brought a cold weather sleeping bag, a sleeping pad, uh, backpacking cook stove, um, fire starting equipment, uh, food for the however long it ended up being that we were in there. Um, boots. Boots. Like two different pairs of boots. like Rubber boots and hiking, hiking boots. boots. Right, because getting in and out of the water, we didn't know what that situation was going to be like. So yep. Andy and I brought in like hip waders. You guys had knee highs. Yep. Um, all of your basic hunting equipment. We had a strong debate about whether or not we should bring like our saddles and sticks in or not, if we would need that. Um, so we brought a couple saddles and a couple sets of sticks, but not all of them. Fishing um, gear. Fishing, fishing gear. gear. What else? Bows. Bows and arrows. Um, Andy shotgun. brought a little... Oh, and Andy brought a shotgun, a little 410 packable shotgun, which was clutch. So that's what we packed in with. Um, we set out to the entry point, got the canoes out there, got loaded up, and started paddling in. Before we got started, where was everyone's heads at? Where were... Uh, Josh, when we were unloading all of our equipment, me and Andy noted that Josh was like back and forth, back and forth, <laughs> spinning around circles, walking in circles, looking at his gear. Uh, what were you thinking oh, at that point? Like, I was just anxious. Like, I haven't done a trip like this. Like, I spent some time on the water, but not like not paddling all this gear across lakes and rivers and portaging it. I just, I just had some anxiety leading up to it, like what we were actually getting ourselves into. Mm-hmm. Andy? Um, it was kind of. I don't want to sound like a know-it-all, but I, like it was a, exactly what I was hoping it would be. Like when we got there, there until we got to some of the portages, yeah. I wasn't ready for that. But it was exactly, I mean, just the layout and the way the the water, like little, slow moving rivers between lakes and things like that. It was just 
I was I was ready for it when we pulled in. I was ready to get in there. What do you think, Charles? You came into this with you weren't as involved in with most of the planning. You were you were kind of tagging along on a lot of different trips and just joining people and and you know enjoying that experience and documenting it a little bit. Uh, where was your head at? Man, I I think the whole time I've just been going into everything with an open mind and just ready to see and experience everything to its full capacity. But when we got here, I really liked the landscape driving in and the water was what, like Andy said, everything I hoped it'd be. But I was a little paranoid about canoeing and worried about having all the camera equipment and hoping we wouldn't flip it, but <laughs> that didn't happen. But we tried. Yeah. We oh tried man, we it. were close. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say we, I would say one person tried, but we did manage not to. And that was something that was a little bit concerned about too. Like, especially since the last time I was in the canoe was oh, on a geez. river in Montana and I yeah. flipped the canoe in the middle of winter so, and soaked myself. Yeah. We came up with, uh, we brought two way radios in case there was some emergency <laughs> and we had to decide what uh, everybody's call name was. And right off the bat, everybody decided that tippy canoe was perfect for Mark. So. <laughs> yeah. Old tippy canoe. And then Josh, we decided to call brown bear because he can't discern between grizzly bears and black bears. <laughs> He's just shaking his head and rolling his eyes. Uh, we never really did ever come up with what yours was, Andy. No. Well, I I think it... Mouth breather. Yeah, that one was... that one Whisper was, yeller. Yeah. But, <laughs> loud I mean, talker. It's not that funny when it's that true, you know? And I'm out there yelling and mouth breathing and stuff. And the photographer's like, hey... Man, you really do breathe with your mouth open. I'm like, I thought I told you that. Like, it's like all those shots are ruined because your mouth's open. I'm like, oh, okay. oh man. Um, so the two-way radios didn't end up being used very much, though, anyways, because no one ever turned them on. Although they did scare <laughs> us one night. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit with that one. Um, but yeah, so we got in. We found this entry point we thought would be an easy, relatively easy one to get to. It gave you access to a number of different lakes that we could go explore. Um, and seemed like a nice way to dip our toe in. Um, so we can kind of fast forward. We got in there, set up camp, set up the A-frame, wall tent, uh, started fishing. Well, that first night, did we fish a little bit that first night? I think so. Yeah. I think we got yeah. a late afternoon, early evening maybe. Yeah, we definitely fished. Yeah, we that fished was from the shore that night. Late evening, I guess. And yeah, yeah, fish from the shore. No fish caught that night, right? Right. Um, but kind of scouted a little bit around. We were getting firewood. Garrett, yeah. Getting firewood. Right off the get, and we found I found a buck rub up on top of the hill. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were like high fiving. We we, yep. got it. we did it. We it's found done. we found the deer. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen easy. Next morning, uh, really early in the morning, we all had said like leading to the trip, we just want to have at least a morning or two we can sleep in, just relax a little bit. We're so hectic and busy all the time, and usually the hunts, especially that I drag you guys along for, I'm usually like, cracking the whip and really annoying about it. We're like, no, this time we're gonna relax. And like 5.30 in the morning, Andy Kramer's pops up, ah, let's go, right away. <laughs> I, what was up with that? I just, I'm ready to get going. I wasn't, I didn't want to lay there anymore. You were excitable. Yeah. I got up. Cranking I, I, the zipper up and down, waking everybody up. Well, I, I felt like there was deer to be killed. So after that buck rub, when I got up, like it was going to happen. So how'd your first morning hunt go? Like the rest of them. <laughs> no. I actually, I was trying to sneak up to the top of that ridge where kind of where that buck rub was. And I was probably 50 yards from the top of that. And I heard it sounded like a deer running off. You could feel, you know, hear the hooves hitting into the ground. And I was like, oh, but I was still optimistic at that point. Like, yeah, they're here. 
didn't have any idea what I was walking into. And then I did some scouting around and saw some more deer sign. But when you said deer sign, what were you saying? Um, I found a couple beds on top of the top of that ridge, and I think that's the deer that I probably kicked up. Um, I got, I got sat down, and uh, I had a couple red squirrels come running, chasing each other, and I thought it was deer. And I got pretty excited for a minute there. I had my heart pumping, and then were you knocked? Knocked. Oh yeah, I had. You're I, ready to go. I was ready. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. No, That was pretty much the first morning, and then I made my way back down. Well, was that the morning that I... Did you get a grouse? I shot at one. I launched, I took some feathers off of a grouse with my bow and launched an arrow into the, I don't know, still, <laughs> we're going to swing back around and look for it, I think, How before many, we leave. Yeah, but. you lost a few arrows, huh? Yeah. Um, so let's describe the terrain, I guess. So we just said, like, there's all these lakes and rivers. There's hundreds and hundreds of these lakes and rivers and everything. But then in between all that is this big northern woods, like, I think this would be called, like, a boreal forest, maybe? Or no, that might be, I don't know. I'm going to backtrack on that north woods big woods forest right. and then this uh canadian shield rocky kind of surface you've got these big rocky ridges big rocky points jutting out into the lakes everything's rocky um quite a bit of topography i mean Way lots of ups and downs expecting. um right. rugged stuff when the visibility is very very close like your thick, neck thick, yeah. is a you cannot nest. see can't shoot a bow more than 15 or 20 yards there usually. There are very few places you could shoot past 20. A lot right. of places we were setting up for like 10-yard shots. Right. So that first morning, you came back, though. Like, we had, we did still sleep in. You came back. Yeah, it was pumped. like... There's deer. There's yeah. sign. I spooked a couple. 
Right. It's game on. Yep. Um, and then also you'd seen some grouse. Yep. And I saw two grouse right behind the tent, like 10 yards from the tent. Right. So we got all set up midday then and did some fishing. And I think we caught fish on the first day, right? Well, Andy caught fish. Andy caught fish. It's true, boys. First fish was your big pike? Yep. It wasn't huge, but it was right in the wheelhouse because it was at over 30 we couldn't keep. Right. So it's just under that, probably 25 inches, something like that. Yeah. Nice one, though. Yeah. Um, and what, I mean, let's summarize the fishing. We fished that lake. You fish Fortown Lake. Well, we fished the other lake. We fished another one farther to the north and east. And three or four along the way. How many fish did we catch? I think a grand total of, what did we have? Well, how many did you catch? I see where this is going. I caught four. I caught two. So I mean, Mark, catch, Mark caught zero. <laughs> 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 I might be the only person that has ever gone to the Boundary Waters and not, not caught a single fish. The closest I came was a nice big pike followed my stick bait right to the bottom of the boat. He didn't see do him. the figure eight. I did do it. Oh. Didn't take. Yeah. Didn't do it right. He's a big sucker. Well, Mark was um, also using like a little kitty pole too. Oh, that's that right. Way. That was a good, yeah. good part of the trip that we... I thought I'd buy a little pack rod on the way up, and then everywhere the places we well, looked didn't have good pack rods. I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to backtrack, but can we go into uh, why you bought a rod on the way and you didn't buy one earlier? Just because I didn't prepare well. Why though? No, there's no reason why. Why did you not have a rod? I don't know. Spinning rod. Oh, because I wanted to fly fish. Is what you're talking about? There we go. Yes. So I did, and I did want to fly fish. Yeah. Like I thought, if we're going up here, you gotta try fly fishing. But then Andy says, "Oh, the research I did said that's not gonna be very good right now." So just like a day before the trip, I called a bunch of shops around here trying to get the scoop and talk to a guy who takes fly fishing pretty serious. He said, "No, you can. You just gotta find like gra- green grass still. You can find some spots where there's still some green weedy grass." rip some streamers over top of them with an eight weight and you can still do it. So I almost bought a brand new eight weight cause my fly rods are all five weights, but Andy luckily had one. So brought all that. But then I also thought, well, you know, it might not work better. Get a spinning, a new spinning setup too. Me and Josh were high fiving every time he was talking about fly fishing. <laughs> and that's part of why he like, look at this guy. So yeah, bought a new crappy little pack rod. And on the first day, the tip broke, just casting, not even doing anything crazy. The tip, the last six inches broke off. So that was probably the only reason why I didn't catch fish, if probably. we're being honest yeah. about it. Yeah, if I, I had, if I had a good exactly working rod. Right. And, and then you, right after that, he went to fly fishing and he caught. Well, if the thing is, though, that was kind of a lousy rod, too, I feel like. Oh, if, my rod? Yeah, if you had taken better care of it, I probably would have caught some fish on it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I think you yeah. have some merit behind that. I'm glad we're on the same page there. Uh, but fishing, we did not catch many fish. No. We rough. tried all sorts of things. Yeah. We tried for pike. We tried for walleye. We tried for smallies. We, we trolled, casted, jigged. Jigged, crankbaits, baits, suspending, floating. Worm uh, harnesses. Worm yeah, harnesses, crawlers, yeah. leeches. Close to shore, far from shore, off the points, in the inlets. Nothing. It was a pretty valiant effort, I think. Yeah. It was a valiant effort. But we talked to some other people, and they all had similar experiences. So it seemed like things were just slow right now. Don't exactly know why, but it sounds like it's it's definitely not like this all the time. From everything I've heard, it can be really incredible. It can be amazing fishing. That just wasn't happening for us. Um, Fishing was not happening. Grouse hunting 
was decent. I went out that next day on a morning hunt and saw two grouse. Uh, Josh, didn't you see a grouse that same morning? Yep. yep. I saw grouse almost every time I went out. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue is that you and I didn't get a small game license because right. we didn't have a shotgun or anything. Right. In retrospect, we should have had shotguns. 100%. We should have had small game licenses. Yep. I tried to tell them. You did. But what what were we going to do? We were going to take turns with that shotgun. Or you could have at least shot him with your bows. Yeah. Still fighting it, isn't he, Josh? <laughs> Josh knows. <sighs> Next time. Next time. Next time we'll have our own little but packable shotguns. If you want to get right into it, just let's just do it now. Yeah. My right shells. About, oh, oh, the shells. Yeah. So anybody that knows me knows that this is the most Andy Bradley thing ever. Go ahead, Mark. I think you'll be more eloquent. So we know one who isn't eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Furter. Unbelievable. We're, uh, <laughs> we're going to go out and try to shoot some grouse because Andy had seen some that morning. So Andy's like, all right, yeah, I've got to find my shell. So he starts digging through his bag, and he's got shit strewn all over the place, strewn all everywhere. We've been there for less than 12 hours. And this is just how it is with Andy. Yeah. He, you, he'll, he'll pull a pack of tuna out of one pocket, and then he'll pack, get, you know, he's, he brought a tool bag with him, a DeWalt <laughs> tool bag That's with what him. my food goes in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just don't know what you're going to get. But he tore his whole thing apart, cannot find the shells. So he says, you know what, dang it, I'm paddling all the way out of here. He packed his stuff up, paddled all the way back out, down Josh, the river. Josh, talked him into that yeah, too. Yeah. And then drove all the way back to the nearest town, bought new shells, came all the $25 way back. $25 for a box of 410 shells. That's very crazy. Yeah. Came all the way back, paddled all the way back, got to camp, fiddling around, looks in his backpack in another pocket. Oh, here's my shells. After all that. <laughs> and I, I told you guys, I didn't have to tell anybody that I found them. I could have left them in there and just been like, man, I wish I wouldn't have forgot the shells. But I'm not that guy. So You did come out with it. Yeah. That was good because we got a good laugh out of that. Yeah. God, we laughed a lot. Yes. We laughed a lot. My stomach hurt. Yeah. You you, you especially. You, yeah. Because you weren't, you weren't prepared for it. No. Like we, yeah. We've been in this situation before, the three of us. We've hunted and done a lot of stuff together, so we know what it's going to entail. But you had no idea coming into this. Yeah. what the situation was going to be. And there'd be nights I would just be like dying chuckling. Chuckles. <laughs> Chuck is a chuckler. Yeah, yeah. What did you, rewinding the tape even further, what did you think about like just being thrust in the situation with three random dudes? Because we'd only met once. Yeah. We didn't know these guys. Were you nervous about that? What if we were complete jerks? I would I'm I'm pretty good at like just getting along with people, feeling out the situation. Maybe we were jerks. Oh yeah, he's kind of like backpedaling now. No, he won't make eye contact. When you get home and see your girlfriends, the first thing you're gonna say, oh, three real douchebags. Or was like just one douchebag, and the rest of us were cool. Mark and Andy were real nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I meant by that, Verter. <laughs> no, it was great. Um, going into it, I mean, I've kind of just been drifting around for the month prior, so kind of transient. Yeah, not nah, more feral. <laughs> <laughs> but. No one knows what we're talking about. No, the hardest so, the hardest part of it all was like just going from personality to personality. But I felt like this was a pretty good fitting group. That's good. We thought so too. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about the grouse pounding. Yeah. So we would do this whole grouse pound idea, which because there's only one person with a shotgun, we'd have Andy walk in the middle, and then the other three of us would walk in a line on either side, kind like of bird dogs. As, yeah, like bird dogs trying to sniff them up. And I don't know, day two we tried this and we sniffed up one for you. Yep. But you were the one who spotted it. Actually, I spotted it. (laughs) I said, here's one. And I said, I'm going to, you know, got the gun ready and shot it. And 
I think Josh climbed a tree. He was, <laughs> he was startled. Like, he was like, oh, you got to tell you me. You got to let me know. <laughs> that wasn't fair. I didn't. I thought you did hear. But then that wasn't the only time we the startled time, him. Yeah, there was a, another time he's sitting on the rocks and Andy thought he saw a bird, right? right. Shot the gun right over Josh's head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Scared the snot out of him that time, too. Um, he got all the time that he Josh wanted to get his picture taken and you threw a rock right behind him and he <laughs> crapped his drawers again. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of gags. I feel like, gosh, when you talk about all yeah. of them, it makes me think maybe I'm not that much fun. It's fun <laughs> for me, but <laughs> thanks I get for putting a lot of legwork into playing yeah. this trip, just uh, getting ragged down yeah, the whole time. So funny. Well, if we'd have caught more fish or yeah, saw a deer, true. I think I might not have been so hard on yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's easy to. We know who to blame for this one. <laughs> yeah, but we did kill another grouse. Yep. And then you kill another grouse at a later date, yep. too, while you're out hunting. Yep. So you killed three grouse yep. on the trip? Three, yeah, I yep. think so. Three. three. Yep. Um, and caught a few fish. So day two, we also had a pretty epic shore lunch. Because mm. when you guys went in to get more shells, you picked up some potatoes and onions and peppers. Yes. Yeah, we did. So, so yeah. we sliced up the onions and so the you're peppers for and my the ADD. potatoes. Yes, your, your deficiencies sometimes help us out. Mm. Yep. And... We filleted up the pike and sliced up the grouse breast and did a pretty epic fry up. And we had no plates though. So after we fried everything up, we just poured it out on these boulders that we were sitting on and just ate fresh fried grouse and fish and potatoes and onions with our fingers right off the rocks. Soaked in lard. Looking out over the lake. Yeah, cried up in lard. That was about one of the very best meals. That was I think I fantastic. I mean, that made the trip. I've eaten grouse before, but I just, I don't know. It just wasn't as good as this time. I don't know why that is. It was excellent. Yeah. Very good. Maybe it was simply because it was so cherished because it was the only protein we were acquiring. Right. But it was fantastic. Um, so that's our grouse hunting. Right. We covered fishing and grouse hunting pretty quickly. Unfortunately, a lot each one of our categories here could be covered quite quickly. <laughs> right. And then the rest of it was, was just the deer hunting. laughing and stuff. Talk about deer hunting. Uh, so Andy had your encounter the first morning where you heard a deer. Um, the next morning, no, that night, Charlie and I went out, and we found two fresh rubs and two fresh scrapes. And you guys saw some sign. And basically, as we discussed, there's all these big rocky ridges coming out. And then there's pine trees, birch trees, balsam, and some scrubby oaks, some kind of red oak. And so I originally thought, all right, one of the reasons why this area looked so enticing is that we'd heard there's these oak ridges. So we assumed there'd be a lot of deer feeding on these acorns. We first started kind of traversing along the points and we did see some sign right up by camp. But ultimately, all the sign we found was right there next to camp. It was. I think we found four scrapes total, five rubs total, and tracks and droppings, all of it within like 150 yards camp. Yep. And then everywhere else we walked and went, nothing. Yeah, not much going on. Nothing. I mean, the first night, me and Charlie did a two and a half mile circuit. So basically, my thought process coming into this was, I'm going to walk and scout. I'm going to scout and scout and scout till I find something really worth hunting. I'm not just going to set up randomly and just sit because that's like the first place to get to. I'm going to walk and find this stuff. So kind of still hunted our way through working a series of benches and ridges trying to find oaks. And I assume once you found the oaks, you'd find a lot of deer sign. That did not end up being the case. So we did a two-and-a-half-mile circuit the first night. Another night we did just under a two-mile circuit going in a different direction. Another night we had a different set of circumstances, which we can talk about the jackfish night. 
Um, and then last night, another kind of long circuit down into an interesting area. But I mean, did you guys have any different experience other than that? Still hunting our way into these areas, looking for sign, not finding anything. And then almost always just hunting, at least in many cases for me, it was hunting a terrain feature. Like, yep. all right, yep. that's there's it. no sign. Yeah. So maybe this bench along the ridge or this saddle in the ridge in a trail and hope yeah. something came by. It was yeah. for me, it was more like, where can I shoot? Because most of this, there wasn't a lot of deer sign anyway. So if I can shoot five yards and there's no deer sign, or why not sit where I can shoot 40 yards and yeah. there's mm-hmm. no deer sign? So that's kind of what I did. I felt optimistic though. Like there was a lot of times where I sat there, it was easy to hang on to your bow thinking it could happen any minute. After a week of that, I don't understand why I was so, but it's a good attitude. Yeah, I had a good attitude. I had, I think my chi was good. Your chi was good. <laughs> you definitely balanced it when we got on that log. Yeah. So, so we, we didn't have very much luck though. We're three quarters of the way through the trip. We still had not killed a deer. I still hadn't caught a fish. Andy decided that our chi was a little bit off. And there was a huge... I think we all agreed, though, didn't we? Well, yeah. Our chi was definitely I mean, I don't off. think we may, we may not have agreed on how to, you know, correct it. For some reason, one of us thought that the way to correct it would be to try to climb atop a deadhead sticking out of the lake. Right. Why? Like, how did that come to be the solution? <sighs> that's In your mind. Karate kid. De- desperate, yeah, desperate times, you know. That's what I... And I thought, you know, man, this is a desperate measure, but if I could get on top of that log... And do, like, the crane kick from the Karate Kid. I thought that that may... That would change it all. Right. I, I felt wish... like at any point it was going to change anyway, and I thought if I just get out and do this, then it's going to change on its own. It's just going to happen anyway. Or rally the troops. Yeah, get and us then so you guys are going to be like, yeah. You're gonna Look start, how cool he we're is. We're going to start vibrating there. on a good level all the same, mm-hmm. and then it's going to happen. I wish you could have seen Josh when you were trying oh to do God. that. He was having a heart attack. He had his hand over his, on his chest like his heart, <laughs> like a 90-year-old lady. He literally, he's, <sighs> I can't look at this. He, I can't look at this. He was, I, can't I, can't, I can't watch He was clutching Mark's shoulder <laughs> and holding his chest going, oh, Lord. A tear might have trickled down his <laughs> oh. cheek. When I got back in the boat, he would like lean back. I'm just thinking oh. all the gear you guys had in your canoe just no, I'm being a, at the bottom of the lake. That's what I, I was dismounted. I, it was pretty smooth. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't able to do the Karate Kid thing. I was sitting in the front. Yep. Yeah, let's, let's just yeah. describe this a little bit. So this is a really bad idea. It was. Now it was you're not, to, never, ever, ever do what Andy did. No. Terrible Never. Idea. And it didn't fix the chi either, so. No. So, yeah. But tell us. Yeah. Charlie. I'm in the front. Andy decides he's going to climb up on this deadhead. And I'm pretty sure you were kind of daring me at that point. Yeah. Because, do it. Yeah, do yeah. it. I bet you won't. Well, yeah, you. He and did I, say that. Yeah, but I, I, I didn't need him to. <laughs> Encourage me. I was going to be I'm done. all for encouraging bad decisions. Yeah. But in retrospect, that was yeah. bad when I'm in the front of the canoe. Yeah. So we're, it's only, I mean, I think it's only probably close to 30 foot deep right there. So yeah. And the water temperature is probably a 38. 38. Yeah. But we go by it and Andy's like, oh, I can get on there. I can definitely get on there. He's like, swing me around. I put him right next to it. He grabs a hold. He's like, oh, I'm going to notch a foothold in here he's like you know what? i don't even need a foothold so very gracefully takes his hands out of the canoe grabs the log this is like a telephone pole shaped sticking log, out of the sticking lake. on like a 45 degree angle out of the water what i didn't know though before you continue is it wasn't rigid so as i climbed my once you had your hands on it and you picked your foot up and you put your knee on the log. It was too just late. Just no going, going back. And the <laughs> log starts leaning into the water. 
And I realized the canoe's then, tipping. The canoe's getting a little tippy, and Josh is freaking out. Yep. I'm and, panicking a little. Yeah, you're panicking. I can see it in your eyes. Yep, you had... I was filming. Yeah. My phone. Josh, or yeah, Mark was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are going to die. <laughs> but I did it. I, I got off the boat. You did not do it. Get the video. <laughs> you he did, was, you did he not was, fully he do it. He was three quarters way out of the boat. Okay, three quarters of the way, but you were not fully on I got to see the video. In my mind, I did the karate kid <laughs> thing. <laughs> so I, I feel like... And he was wearing a life jacket, so that was one safe part. Yes, he was wearing a life jacket. Chuck Ready? had a life jacket, but I don't know if it was buoyant enough to hold him up with the 40 pounds of stuff he had wrapped around him. So would you have floated? Yeah. Okay. Might have been. Head Here, first. Here's the video. We'll see if you can hear anything. Language might be an issue. We'll censor if needed. Listen to Josh. He's the prudent one. Father. Right now he's leaning out. The canoe's tipping. He's holding on to it. Two legs still in. And then he came right back in. Your legs never yeah, left the think, canoe. Uh, one of my legs did. One of your legs did. But you still have the foot inside the canoe. Yeah, I don't believe that. I, I mean, you had a knee I'm, on I'm going to go with three quarters weight because 90% of his body weight was on that log. My body weight was on the log at one point because it... It dunked, we can talk it about dunked this right all down. day if you want. <laughs> but either way, it, it doesn't change it the fact Archie. that Archie stayed out of line or whatever was going on. So we were all hunting, hiking around. You guys were basically doing the that same thing the I was doing. Well, we, yeah, trying to do a grouse pond. That didn't work out. But the deer hunting, did either one of you have a different perspective on the deer hunting, a different tactic you tried, a different thing you're thinking about other than cover country? Yeah. Check I, out yeah. terrain features. Look for sign. Trying to cover some. It's just so loud. Like all when, the leaf cover was when down. there wasn't any wind. The first very, day was awesome yeah. that I got up because it had been raining. Yeah, and everything was wet and it was yeah. great. I didn't even notice how quiet it was. But then the next Later day, the sun the, came yeah. out in the wind and it was like, holy man, there's no way to sneak anywhere. Yeah, yeah, you, you get a real hard time sneaking anywhere because it was just so loud and crunchy and trying to weave your way through all this stuff. I mean, there's not like any deer major trailways that you could walk and. No field edges here. Um, no field edges. No. I mean, so it was just it was just tough walking. But I I kind of did the like a combo. Like try to cover some ground, and then if I saw a good spot where I could see a little bit, I'd sit down for a little bit and try to keep going, or try to sit up on top of one of these ridges where I could look down into some of these drainages that are going down to the water. Um, but yeah, very little sign, few piles of scat here and there, but not much. Yeah. So we ended up hunting the whole trip, and we saw two deer total. The two deer total were spotted when we had actually portage to a new lake, portage across several, several lakes portages, yeah, yeah. to this new lake, and we're going to fish it during the day and then try to scout and hunt that evening. And we're starting to troll along the shoreline, going to get fish, and then Andy, you turned and you looked at us and you said... I said it really quiet, I think, didn't I? <laughs> There's a couple deer over there! <laughs> Real stealthy like. <laughs> they, were, they were running when I saw them. Yeah. So when I yelled, I don't think it had a lot to do. I don't think that I yelled anyway, but. You basically whispered to us, though, that there was a couple deer, right? right. Deer. Deer right here. Yeah. And so you you and Chuck were in the canoe together, right. and you kept paddling, and me and Furter had not gotten past the point yet, so we backed up. So we split up. You went, continued past where the deer were. Me and Josh pulled back behind it, and we each beached our canoes, and we're going to try to do some kind of stock on these right. deer. Um. So 
Yeah. I never knew. I, I never actually saw the deer though, because we hadn't right. crossed this rocky point to be able to see into that inlet yet. So I was operating under the assumption that they were still like at the water's edge drinking or something. So I tried to like real carefully and quietly grab my bow and all my stuff going like really slow. Yeah, we kind of wondered why we never talked about this. Why it took so long? Yeah, we were watching. He had an emergency. Oh no, that was later. <laughs> that was later, but I'll explain that too. Um, he took a long time getting out of the boat. That makes sense now. Because like, I thought, what the hell's he doing yeah. over there? I thought they were like thirty-five right. yards away, forty yards still right. over the rise. So like, I tried. We were trying. Yeah, it's trying still to hard in those canoes, but trying to get out quietly without banging stuff around. Trying to get my bow out. Finally, did and like just real quietly crept over the ridge, but they were gone. And then I tried following them for a while, and then eventually I had to go poop so bad I couldn't do it any longer. So oh. finally, I just said, you know what? There's no way I can keep trying to stalk this. I thought I was on tracks, but I had no idea how far. I was on tracks. I wasn't sure if it was theirs. Um, I couldn't do it any longer. So I had to go back to the boat, got toilet paper. From me. From you. Always prepared. Dad. Always prepared. Yep. The dad, dad always got it. Yep. Um, we should talk about our group roles, too, at some point. Um, long story short on that, I never saw the deer. Andy, you did kind of a similar thing. You did a sneak. We snuck in and kind of got... Ran into some water we couldn't cross, and if we'd have done the second thing we did, we yeah. went out and around. I think there could have been a, that could have been you know effective because there were some trails, and it's possible that those deer were using that little ridge and that little low spot between the two. But yeah. who knows? There was fresh tracks and stuff there too. But but that was basically the deer hunting. I mean, we went out every night, some mornings, didn't see any, saw very little sign. After that, what were the deer numbers? Oh, well, like what was it? Very Three to five like deer? Three to five deer per square mile. A lot of the areas, some places like zero deer per square mile. Yeah. So we... Guys I was talking to. There might have been three to five deer in the zone we were hunting. Total. I feel like if... And there could have been more in some areas and less... I mean, just, if if we had it to do over again, do you feel like we could have hunted smarter in our right behind our camp and maybe been effective? That's the one thing I kind of regret. I think if we did it over, going to... Jackfish? What, yeah, Jackfish Bay would be the... I mean, the the terrain there was more open. Yeah, which we could was have nice. gone to that other bay. Um, and I, I agree with what you're saying, Charlie. I think what that area gave us was more country to work because it was yeah. obviously very hard to cover country in a stealthy fashion, walking over land. Right. You, so if yeah. I could do it over again from a deer hunting perspective, I would have gotten to a bigger lake, a much bigger lake, like this one we went to where we saw those two deer. And in a situation like that, you just paddle to totally different areas, and then you just slip right. in right off the water and hunt, you know, right. 50 yards in from the water. Yeah, that's like that. probably not a bad idea. Or even try to replicate what happened that one day where just we saw deer off the, bank, off the bank. Like, get up really early in the morning, and, oh, yeah. crack of dawn, just start paddling the lake, glassing the shoreline. Once you spot deer, beat yourself, and then make a stalk through the land to them. Um, that might have been a more productive means of doing it. Our way certainly didn't Well, work. one of them could have stalked him. The other one would have had to stay back and fish. Oh, oh you're making a reference to I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> what happened? I took you where I thought the deer were going to be. We both sat over there. It was a good time. Yeah. What else would we have done differently? Because we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't shoot a deer. I, I honestly we think didn't see a deer. we could have done better yeah, we would at camp. If we would have I honestly. A little smarter around camp. Yeah. We started grouse hunting it. And yeah. Walking well, all over. I feel like we'd already. We didn't realize how little sign we were going to see other than that though yeah right. we kind of blew that up like we're going to go over here and see sign yeah assuming that 
why wouldn't we assume that? Right. Because the first place we parked, we're like, hey, look at there. The buck rubs. Yeah. Buck rub. Just didn't end up being the case. Yeah. yeah. We just kind of lucked into the first deer sign, and that was kind of the most plentiful sign that we yeah. saw the whole trip. So the, the deer hunting didn't go as we would have hoped it would have. The grouse hunting was decent if we had all had firearms. Yeah, it was way pretty good for me. Pretty good. Uh, the fishing didn't go as we would have hoped. But still, as we left, we all kept talking about what an unbelievable experience this was, how awesome it was. All throughout it, we were commenting about how amazing it was. We haven't done a really good job of explaining why no. any of that stuff, why it was so cool. Um, let's talk about like our favorite moments on the trip. I definitely have a couple that stand out for me. Do, do either any of you I think guys? Probably a lot of our favorites. We'll let you go first on the, the favorites because I think we're going to have similar ones. Very similar ones, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my first favorite was our second night of hunting. I think uh, me and Charlie had been out hunting together. We got back to camp, and then you two had been in another zone. You paddled back after dark. Yeah, we're right in front of you guys, sitting yeah. on the rocks. Yep. yep, sitting in the canoe, and we we're sitting on the rocks. You pull up to us, and we're just kind of like recapping the night's hunt, and all of a sudden we hear a noise. And I'm like, shh, shh, quiet, quiet. And then all of a sudden a pack of wolves lit up across the lake. And we all just sat there in silence listening to these wolves doing what wolves do. And of all the time that we've spent out there doing things like this between us four combined, I think this is accurate, unless, Charlie, maybe you had heard some before. I've heard a couple before. You did hear, okay. Well, all the time that I've done it, Thanks you guys me. have done it, We've never had heard wolves howl. I'd I'd heard one single howl one time. Never anything like this, though. So that was, like, such a cool experience to hear that. I I mean, without sounding cheesy, like, I don't know if there's anything more emblematic of wilderness than, you know, a pack of wolves howling. It just makes you feel like you are in it. Yeah. And that happened that that night. So cool. Awesome. So we heard them that night. And then the next morning, we actually heard them again. In like a feeding frenzy or and something, like crazy. yipping and howling yeah. and barking and going nuts. Um, so that was pretty cool to hear. So that was my top moment. Probably one, that was one of the major things. One of them, like, yeah. God, I hope that we get to hear wolves. I knew there was a lot in the area. Maybe not great for our deer hunting, but I just that'd be a cool experience. Yeah. We had that, and we hear, we're hearing it while sitting out on a rocky outcrop. the The water on the lake in front of us is glass, so still. The stars are shining so bright above us. Reflecting off the lake. Reflecting off the lake. There's just a little bit of orange and pink on the horizon, just a tiny bit that just allows you to see the etched out outlines of all the pine trees along the horizon line. I mean, just the most beautiful thing you ever saw. And then the wolves. I mean, it's a moment I'll never forget. Yeah, it was, it was, it cool. was awesome. So take us to the nether, to the next one. I think I know what it's going to be. Mine would be, so one of the, port after several of the portages, one of the days that we saw the deer on our way back was we were paddling with our headlamps, which is pointless when you're in the middle of water big enough that you can't see the shore with your headlamp. So we finally realized that maybe just turn them off. And once we did that, it was like the whole sky just lit up. Like there were so many stars and you could literally see the stars reflecting in the water. The water was flat enough that you could see the big dipper reflecting. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Just, Shooting stars everywhere. Yeah, we also all shooting all stars. Us, at least one of them. Yeah. Yep. Saw one shooting star. So quiet. Yep. So. That was something that, too, we didn't talk about. Was Yes. When the wind died down. When we first got in there. Like, as we were getting in, it was just like, it was a weird like silence. hauntingly quiet. Yeah. yeah. Really entered a whole quiet. new world. You didn't want yeah. us, like, everybody was whispering. 
everyone almost except everyone Andy. except for Andy. Well, I I was doing my version of whispering too, shifting bass lines. Yeah, you just I, yeah, exactly. get a different bass line to yeah. work it off of. But yeah, the silence was kind of uh, it was just weird. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we've heard silence before, but I don't know why it seemed different. But it did. Like, I remember thinking about shooting a grouse with that shotgun. I thinking, man, I don't know if I want to be that loud. Like, I don't know. There's something weird about that. Or there was another time where, like, we're I was at camp and you were across the way a little bit in the boat, and I wanted to let you know that me and Charlie were going to go out hunting. Right. And I looked at you. You're like I don't know, hundred yards away or something. And very easily, I could have hollered. Right. Said, hey, we're going to go hunt. But it just seemed like right. almost sacrilegious to the break wrong that thing silence. To do, yeah just seemed like you shouldn't break that yeah and it was cool so cool i mean yeah i don't want that to sound nerdy but it just it's not something you thought about it just when you were in the moment it was just like ah, God, i don't want to say anything now like it's hard to explain i don't know we didn't shoot a deer we shot a couple of grouse we didn't catch a lot of fish but i think we all could agree that it was one of the most beautiful places we've ever seen one of the most special yeah outside experiences we've ever had definitely yep i don't think i've ever seen a sky like at night light up like it did like for maybe like two or three of the nights we had some really crystal clear skies oh my god the stars and just every you can see everything milky way big dipper little i mean it's just incredible there's something about how removed you had to be you know that you weren't by a truck you weren't by the road yeah you had for some reason it was unique that you had to use a canoe you had to come over water that's just so different Yep. than anything you couldn't just walk back yep i think adding yep. the element of water to anything kind of like roots you a little deeper into the experience yeah yep. i mean it was just i don't know every day sitting on that rock yeah overlooking the lake every morning we'd sit there drink our coffee in the evenings sit there after the hunt that just was maybe like the best thing of it all just being there in this place rooted to this location that was I don't know, sends you back in history a little bit. We kept yeah. talking about what the Native Americans might have done here and what the trappers did here, right. all these people that came before us. And now we, in some small way, we got to insert ourselves into that timeline. Yeah, it's that, like, as you're a kid, that campsite that you imagine when you're a kid. Like, you got the tent, it's got a stack sticking out of it, there's smoke rolling out of it. There, I mean, it's water all around it, two canoes sitting there. It was, it was just like that perfect campsite that you imagine when you're a child, like, oh. I want to do that someday. Like on a, oh, was it Terry Redland or something, painting or something you'd see. I don't know. It was, it was, it rivals the mountains for me. I didn't think that would be possible, but just how the solitude of it and how you don't, you don't see anybody else. You don't hear anything like the wool. I mean, all that stuff, it's got its own uh, draw for sure. Charlie, you, where did you rank this on your level of epic experiences you've had? It's different, you know, like the mountains has one aspect to it. And it's like the work you put in to get to the highest peak. But this is just like more calming, deeper appreciation of like the wild. Yeah. I mean, they both have their place and it's hard to compare. But if there was two places to go before I died, it'd be the mountains in here. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah, pretty special. Especially that night when we were paddling back in the dark and you were just, I don't know, that's a moment that will be hard to ever top just silent we all just kind of yeah. laid back in our canoes even i was quiet and even <laughs> he was quiet and i don't know yeah just special like 10 minutes would go by and you'd be like oh yeah where the mother is that we'd just be laying there in the yeah. canoes looking up it probably took us twice as long to get back because we were just taking our time and yeah i didn't want to barely and paddling and kind of guided us. ourselves by yeah. the stars yep. you know? mm-hmm. 
Just a throwback. That was cool for me when we were coming back and you start imagining like, how do you, we turn your light on to see where you're going on the bank or whatever. And it's like, there was a lot of people that have done this and didn't have that option to flip that light on and right. see what's over there. So right. let's right. turn it off and just, just do it that way, you know, go. And that was neat too, to see things in that, from that perspective, you know? Yeah. So what, what, what final takeaways did you guys have from this experience? You know, we didn't come back with a bunch of protein. We didn't have that kind of success. Um, but where, what's your final thoughts, final outcome, final takeaway, lesson learned, anything like that coming out of this whole thing that you are leaving the boundary waters with? Anyone want to jump on that? I'll go first. I mean, it's a place I definitely want to come back with, like, my family, like, for a summer trip. Like, we scratch just, like, such a tiny little surface of it. And if that's, like, the experience that we could have in this little, just this one little small section, what if you really took some time out here and did, like, a paddle trip and, you know, spent a night at each camp, you know, just kept going around all the different lakes and did a big loop? Like, that'd be an an awesome trip to do with, with the family. And I kept just saying, man, I can't wait to tell my son about this experience or yeah something like that. Just he like, did how do you how do you even put it into words though or pictures don't do it justice there's just gotta bring them is it is a is a different experience than anything i've had i think on a, a hunting trip so yeah, definitely charlie i'd say that it's like it really opens your eyes to the experience of it all like even though it was a hunting trip we weren't successful in that aspect, but made new friends, had a hell of a time, a lot of laughs. So although hunting is important and like a way to get food, it's also about like the places it takes you and the things you can see. And there was a lot of that. And a lot of the small moments stick out, like the beaver slapping at you guys. Yeah. And <laughs> that was scaring cool. you. Yeah. yeah, that was God, that was loud. Yeah. yeah. And all the other cool stuff that you see. Yeah, there's a lot of little things like that. I I kind of forgot about that already. Yeah, it's like dang, there's well, so much did, to take in. Yeah, we did a, a fun thing. Started a couple nights, and Josh started doing an audio journal on his phone. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so each night in the wall tent, we're all laying there, and, and we'd all try to recap everything that happened that day. And it sounded stupid at first, but it was actually kind of cool. Right. We'll go I didn't think it ever sounded stupid. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it sounded awesome the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I ridiculed the first night for doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Anything else, Andy? Oh, let's see. No, not really. I mean, I, and then there's always this, this is the feeling that you always have when you leave, but I just feel like that you, we could have killed deer if we did that on our little island there. I feel like if we had just done it a little bit different and played that a little smarter, maybe canoed into there and just didn't push, but you don't know that, we just didn't but know. didn't push in there, just found the sign that we found, found early on and just sat up on it. Yeah. and tried, you know, those early mornings or, you know, right before darks and maybe, but I mean, it was just going to be a deer was going to have to choose to walk by you in the yeah. middle of this one point, whatever million. Yeah. Yeah. I think right. for me, it was, it was definitely all those things. And I, I came into this hunt having a different set of expectations than I do on most of my trips, which was good. Right. Um, We've talked about I, that. Yeah. It's like a little I, different Mark Kenyon than there used to be. <sighs> A little bit. Little Not bit. quite as gung. I mean, I'm still gung ho, but I'm also trying to open my eyes to the larger experience, kind of like Charlie was saying. Especially on this one, I wanted to really. Yes, it was a deer hunt, and yes, I wanted to kill a deer, but that wasn't going to make or break it. I wasn't going to obsess over it. I was going to try to appreciate all facets of it. Um, 
It's more fun. Oh my gosh, it like, was fun. Over the course of the last six weeks, one common thread that I've experienced with all the different people and all the trips I've been on is everybody has taken a minute to like soak in where they are. Like it doesn't matter if we're pounding through lights out, going up 2,000 feet of elevation gain and just like sucking wind, you know, but like we stop and we just like look and like, man, how cool is this? Right. Everywhere we've been. It's just like, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And I think that's one of the really cool things about hunting is it gives a lot of us an excuse to go out into these places and interact with them in a way that really forces you to engage, not just drive through it, not just walk through it, but get out there, sit quietly, think about what's happening. Um, That's a great opportunity, privilege we have as hunters to get to do that. But I will say that what this experience reminded me of too is to when we're thinking about our hunts and we're thinking about our plans for the fall i've definitely been guilty in the past of trying to plan like where can i kill like i'm going to do this because i think i can kill a big buck i'm going to go here because i think it's a great chance to shoot something i'm going to go here because you know there's a whatever this is a great reminder of the need to look outside of that sometimes and remember the broader experience and we're sitting in charlie's truck right now and he has a little fortune cookie fortune stick it sitting on his uh, dash. And it says, it is important to broaden your horizons day by day. And I think that's so true. And I think this experience we just had is a perfect example of that. We all went beyond our borders. We all went into an area and a style of hunting and an experience we've never had before. And we learned something new. We experienced something new. We all came out of it, I think, uh, having a really really, I don't know if it's life-changing, but definitely, I think every trip like this, it is life-changing in a way. Yes. We had a powerful experience. We had a really memorable, interesting experience in a wild place that just makes me so appreciative that we have places like this still. Yeah. And I think that's the final thing I would add is that, you know, what intrigued me to do this trip originally was I kept hearing about so many people that cared about this place. They wanted to try to keep this place from getting polluted. They wanted to try to make sure that it's still protected in a pristine state, that it stays wilderness. So many people were fighting to keep that. And I was, you know, huh, I wonder why so many people care so much. And now that we actually went in there and saw it just for the week that we were there, I totally get it now. Yep. 100%, 100%. understand. You um, maybe talk about one of the reasons that's important right now, because I don't think you touched on that about the mining and stuff. Well, what we're actually going to do right now is we're going to hit pause on the podcast. Okay. And we're going to get back. Oh, that's right. Okay. And chat with a couple experts, one or two experts on the topic to get the latest intel on what is happening right now with the Boundary Waters and a set of proposed mining leases that are threatening this location that uh, probably deserves a little bit of extra care. I want so. to look the same the next time I come back here. That's yeah, I want sure. you to bring your son back. Yeah, yeah. We can drink the water straight from the lake. Get to boil it still, Josh. <laughs> <Get a boil. laughs> but you can you can drink the water. It's not gonna yep. be polluted. There will be fish in the water. There will be wildlife drinking the water. There'll be places you can canoe into and listen to wolves and see loons and watch a sunset. That's worth that's worth fighting for, as far as I'm concerned. For sure. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver 
off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. All right, I am now with Lucas Leaf. Welcome back to the podcast, Lucas. Thanks again for having me, Mark. Always nice to be on. Yeah, excited to be able to have this follow-up chat because last year, I guess it was, we originally chatted about this trip I wanted to do and and I was trying to learn about what was happening up in the Boundary Waters and now finally a, a year and a half later, it's happened. Um, and what this what we've done in this podcast so far is, is we just recapped how our hunt went, but now I was hoping to bring you on here to just get us all up to date as accurately as possible rather than me trying to recount what I've read and what I've heard. I'd rather you, who's been so involved with it, get us up to speed on on what's going on in the Boundary Waters. But before we do that, can you just really quickly give us the cliff notes of, of who you are and, and how you are involved with the Boundary Waters? Yeah, absolutely. Um, name is Lucas Leaf. I'm the executive director at Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. And currently one of the main uh, issues that we're working on as an organization is proposed sulfide ore copper mining within the watershed of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in northeastern Minnesota. It's uh, 1.1 million acres of public lands and waters. Uh, it's within the Superior National Forest. The Superior National Forest holds 20% of the entire of the fresh water in the entire national forest system. Uh, that's 3 million acres out of 193. That uh, proposed sulfide ore copper mine is uh, owned by Anapagasta, and has a wholly owned subsidiary company called Twin Metals Minnesota that is uh, proposing this uh, specific type of mine very close to the edge of the Boundary Waters. Um, byproduct of, of this type of mining is uh, sulfuric acid um, and 
tons of other heavy metals, also called acid mine drainage. The main issue with that is this type of mine has never been done in the U.S. without polluting in some form. So you have a very water-rich environment like the Boundary Waters um, and a type of mining that generally is done in arid environments yet still pollutes in some form. So putting those two together is, is quite an issue here in Minnesota specifically because of how water-rich that area is up there. And so what what tell me more about the risk of that specific location i've i've seen and heard about the fact that a lot of this because of the way the water's flowing through the watershed it's particularly placed in a in a dangerous area for the rest of the wilderness is that right yes absolutely so it, the exact spot that it's located is right outside of ely minnesota um most of the mining facilities and proposed mine sites are up to within a quarter mile of the border of the boundary waters and the uh, potential for pollution uh, rolls up through uh, the Kawishaway River, which goes in and back in and back in and out back into the boundary waters itself, and would flow up through the p- potential pollution would flow up through the boundary waters into Voyagers National Park, Rainy Lake, all the way up to Hudson Bay along the uh, United States and Canadian border along Minnesota all the way up. So there's a vast area that could be potentially polluted by this. And um, this is not only a water-based issue, you know, this is a wildlife-based issue. This is an economic issue. Um, the list goes on. So it's, it's very detrimental to um, the outdoor economy that the Boundary Water supports as well. So you mentioned this outdoor recreation economy. Um, I know one Absolutely. of the major uh, I guess proponents of the mine would say that that'll be good for the economy. People need those jobs. And of course, resource extraction and, and that economy is important. Those jobs are important. Um, in this case, though, because of the specific location of it, it threatens so much else too. And, and I know there's been some numbers and, and, and people trying to quantify what kind of economic right. impact the recreation on the boundary waters has and, and all the things related to wildlife and wild places up there. Have you guys, right. can you speak to that at all? I mean, I mean, what are, what's at risk on that level? I think when it comes down to the job argument, you're looking at um, a sustainable and robust outdoor economy that's supported by the boundary waters itself. And as long as that remains in the same, the same way that it is right now, um, it's going to support those jobs in perpetuity, Right. So you will always have this wilderness supporting an outdoor economy in northeastern Minnesota. Um, comparatively to the proposed you know, uh, number of jobs, I don't think we need to get into numbers here specifically, but those jobs uh, put forth by Anasagasta for one or 10, 15 years down the road. And we can kind of get into that a little bit later here. But you're also looking at comparatively, you know, what is, um, you know, uh, how is automation going to develop in that time? So by the time those jobs actually come forth, there really is no way to quantify how many there will actually be at that time. The outdoor economy itself is growing, thus the jobs are growing. And that, do- that doesn't just affect northeastern Minnesota. That affects the folks down in southeastern Minnesota, like Winona Canoe, um, you know, all the hotels and places that people stay when they come to come and visit this place, the gear that they're buying ahead of time. So it's so hard to quantify the numbers, but you have to see the amount of jobs that are already there that are supported by this place too. 
It definitely went out just being there in Ely, just seeing, you know, compared to what I imagine a lot of other small towns across, you know, rural America might be dealing with right now. Ely is seemingly thriving. Lots of shops, great restaurants, a lot of gear shops, a lot of outfitters. Um, obviously, outdoor recreation, hunting and fishing and paddling and camping. That is... It mm-hmm. seems to be the lifeblood of that place, just at least from an observation standpoint, as I pass through there. Um, oh yeah, you know, and and winter sports and recreation, and they're they're building and you know developing more uh, trails around the area too for four wheeling to to get that going more too. So, and I know you guys, you know, visited Paragas. I think that's a shining example of yeah. of you know, what the Boundary Waters can sustain as an outdoor business up there. And he employs a ton of people. It's an amazing business. And that's been around for a while too, 20 years or something like that? Maybe more than that? I, I think I think it's almost 30. Wow. Yeah, it's, they've got a they've got a great deal going there. We, we enjoyed chatting with them and checking out their shop and everything. Um, so, so, okay. The Boundary Waters is is an incredible place. I just experienced it finally, and and that's what we kind of talked about in the whole podcast leading up to this. We've kind of right. we've kind of established that okay, it's a, it's a special place. It supports an important recreation economy. There's these proposed mm-hmm. mines that have a strong possibility of polluting this ecosystem in this special place and damaging the water quality and the fish and and wildlife and all the opportunities that we care about up there. Um, can you get us up to speed on what's been going on in the last couple of years and then just recently this year? So they proposed these these mines, and now there's been this controversy between those who want to protect the boundary waters versus those who want to set up the mine. They're so close to it. Walk me through what's happened and, and where we are today. Sure. I think a good good place to start then is, you know, near the, the end of the uh, Obama administration, they... Uh, instituted what is called a federal withdrawal of roughly around 234,000 acres from the uh, federal mining program, right? So there was this buffer zone uh, around the Boundary Waters Canaria Wilderness that uh, was meant to be uh, a part of a two-year environmental study, which was instituted by uh, that federal mineral withdrawal. So that was great because we knew that that federal withdrawal and that mining study and that environmental study were going to show that this place was too, too special and also, you know, too sensitive of an area for this type of mine to go. Um, fast forward to the uh, Trump administration, that decision was reversed. And uh, last year, Twin Metals, which again, I mentioned is owned by Anapagasta, a Chilean mining company, uh, was granted uh, two leases for sulfide or copper mining near the Boundary Waters. So what we're currently at with that is, again, these leases are highly con- uh, contested you know, because of their proximity to this, to this wilderness. Um, they're also working on a third mineral lease at this point. And since they've been granted those leases, they are now able to move forward on submitting a state mine plan. So that mine plan of operation just like, say, the pedal mine uh, is, you know, Twin Metals is evaluated on the basis of those permits rather than leasing. Um, so for there, we're in a long fight, you know, legal battles, uh, money spent on both sides. But at this point, you know, it comes down to the state level for that mine plan. 
So the permitting process will begin once they submit that mine plan, which will be somewhere towards the end of this year is what we've heard. Um, then that kind of brings the battle down to the state level and our uh, senators and legislators, especially our governor as well here in Minnesota. So what can be besides that? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to ask if you, if, if you don't have more on, on where that's at, my next question would be simply, is there anything the average person can do at this point? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're in a, in a perfect position now for folks to be making calls to their representatives uh, to be making calls to uh, Governor Walls, uh, writing to newspapers, holding events. Um, honestly, the sky is the limit. Make sure you, you know, sign petitions. Um, we have places that folks can sign up, you know, where we set up meetings for them and their legislators. Uh, we just need to make sure that we get the word out and that we show these folks uh, here in Minnesota and nationally that this is an issue just like Yellowstone and Pebble and Bears Ears, right? Um, it's an issue of national importance, and people's voices are most important right now, and that's really what we need folks to do. So keep keep uh, spreading the good word, talking about it, making sure that our legislators know that this is this is a special place and needs to be protected Absolutely. and 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 all of that that makes a lot of sense to me so any other final things we need to know about this i guess i guess one thing we do need to check off on is just for those that are wanting to learn more where should they go to learn sure. more about the issue to learn more about the boundary waters and, and how they can help yeah please visit our website at sportsmanbwca.org uh, you'll find everything you need there to uh, learn more about the issue and also to find out how you can plug into the issue as well and help. Um, we have many great partners that are also helping us with this, like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. So you can also find information and follow them for different work that we're doing. And I would, again, I would just say, you know, make a call, make a call. It's the most important thing. Write a letter. Um, and, you know, hopefully when, you know, uh, also when this mine plan is submitted and, and the uh, submittal of this third lease, if they were to get it, we'll also have some public comment period. And that's a great way for people to plug into this as well. So I'd say those are, are very easy ways for people to help on this and um, help us nationalize this issue because the folks that we're going to need to help are not just in this state, they're across the entire country. Yeah. And I think the final thing I would maybe add is you tell me if you agree with this, but I would also just encourage people to go and see this place. You're for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Experience it for yourself. I think you'll then come to understand why so many people are making a racket about it because it, it really is. I keep saying it's, it's special and um, you do need to experience that firsthand though, probably to really get it. So Head out there That's to Ely, head there into the Boundary Water, support those local businesses and, and those folks that are also fighting this good fight. I think that's a good place to start as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's anything more important than actually seeing the place, you know, as it is and for what it is. And the Boundary Waters is incredibly special and it's a one of a kind place. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Perfect. And we'd also be happy to help anybody get up there if they want to contact us too. 
perfect. Well, I'll make sure to uh, to get people links again as well for where they can get all this information. And thank you, Lucas, for all of your help helping us as we were preparing for our trip and for giving us this update and uh, keeping everyone so well informed. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, sounds like you guys had a great trip, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. It was one of a kind. It was really, really cool. So we're planning on going back again next year. I'm not sure what we'll be chasing, but we're planning on going back soon. Nice. That sounds great. Well, if we can help again, we're always there. Appreciate it. All right, that is going to do it. So all I want to do now is just give you one more set of words of encouragement, I guess, to go and see the Boundary Waters for yourself. We've said it. 15 times during this podcast, I'm sure, if not more. But this place is incredible. You got to go out there, try to hunt it, try to fish it, camp it, canoe it. It's just amazing. And that being the case, please join me in standing up for this place. Sign the petition, send emails, let folks know that some places are too special to risk. And this is one of them. Other things I want to mention, I want to thank Paragus Northwoods Company. These guys uh, helped us get set up with our canoes, with our stove and our wall tent. They helped us figure out where we should go, spent time looking at maps with us. Just took a lot of time to help make this trip successful, and I want to make a special call out to them. Big help. They're located in Ely, Minnesota. If you're heading into the Boundary Waters, you got to stop there. Get your gear, get loaded up on whatever stuff you need. they got a bookstore, they've got clothing, they've got canoes you can rent, the whole nine yards. So check it out. Also, make sure you're checking out Sportsman for the Boundary Waters to learn more about what Lucas was telling you about. And finally, speaking of books and public lands and protecting them, my new book, That Wild Country, it's coming out here in just a matter of weeks. It's actually available early on Amazon right now, but it will be available everywhere else starting December 1st. If you want to pick up a copy, it would mean the world. And if you could leave a review, I would appreciate it so much. So with all that said, thanks again for listening. Best of luck in the woods and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.